Okay. Welcome back to UNICEF Innocenti's podcast series. I'm Kathleen Sullivan, a communications specialist with UNICEF Innocenti, and today we're hosting a special edition of our podcast on the topic of mental health, which is this year's theme for our inaugural Leading Minds Conference for Children and Young People, taking place this year, November 7 to 9, here in Florence, Italy. This is a special podcast because we're joined by our youth leader participants joining us from all over the world to talk about mental health. So why are we talking about mental health? The statistics on youth mental health are astonishing. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among 15 to 19 year old girls. 15% of teenagers in low and middle income countries attempt suicide, and about half of mental disorders begin before the age of 14. In this urgent context, UNICEF's Leading Minds Conference aims to change the game on mental health for youth by getting scholars, scientists, governments, philanthropists, businesses, civil society, and young people themselves to incorporate their perspectives into this dialogue. This dialogue, we hope, will formulate decisive action on mental health. I'm joined by my colleague, Angie Lee, who will help me in moderating a special roundtable discussion exploring mental health issues for youth around the world with our youth participants. As a champion for youth, UNICEF has invited 16 youth leaders to participate, engage, and inform this Leading Minds Conference on mental health. Five of these 16 youth leaders are joining us now for our podcast. To start this podcast discussion off, let's meet our youth leaders who have joined us today to talk about mental health. Hi, um, it's great to be here. My name is Victor Ugo, and I'm the founder of Mentally Energy Initiative and a senior, ca- senior campaign officer with United for Global Mental Health, um, which is a, a global organization um, in London that's um, focused on a campaign in 15 countries, which is a nationally-led campaign called the Speak Your Mind campaign. And this campaign, what we're trying to do with this campaign is to build policy action, um, enable policy action across countries um, that have so far neglected um, the conversation on mental health. Great. Hi. Welcome, Victor. Thank you. Hi. My name is Fatou. I'm 23. Uh, I'm a Senegalese. Um, so I founded some months ago SOS project, um, which is like safe open space project, uh, which is an active listening platform, um, which allows the youth, the Senegalese youth, to be more engaged about mental health topics. Um, and my aim is to um, open the discussion about this topic and to give access to more information and awareness about it. Great. Welcome, Fatou. Hey. Glad to be here. My name is Southfix Haiti, and I'm the founder and chief executive officer of Runaway. Runaway is a social entrepreneurial venture that aims to promote mental health awareness and helps those in need of emotional support. We work primarily with students to provide mental health resources and also work towards breaking down the stigma that surrounds mental health in general. Great. Thanks. Welcome. Hi, my name is Grace Katera. I am a lived experience mental health advocate living in Kigali, Rwanda. I work with the the youth group for the Lancet Commission on Mental Health and Global Mental Health and Sustainable Development. What we do is advocate and disseminate key findings from the Lancet Commission's report, which was launched last year at the Global Ministerium Mental Health Conference. Thank you, Grace. Really happy to have you here. Uh, my name is I'm from Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, the bottom of the world. Uh, yeah, I guess my place in this space sort of started to grow um, before I was born when my dad moved to New Zealand and uh, he couldn't be all of who he wanted to be in our country. He didn't feel like he belonged completely and so that led to some mental health challenges for him and then subsequently our family. And so uh, I guess every family member, (laughs) my direct family, all ended up in health in some way. And so from them I was kind of inspired to do more in health but then also uh, to kind of create places for people to connect culturally for their well-being to be enhanced that way. And so set up a charity with my friends at 14 and then um, since then been working in suicide prevention in my country and uh, looking at how we can elevate Pacific Youth Voice in all worlds and how we can help government to better understand the value that young people's voices bring. Oh, great. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you all here. It's um, 
really encouraging to welcome all of you from around the world. And we're honored to have you here in Florence, Italy for this inaugural Leading Minds event on mental health. So I'd like to start the discussion and this conversation to ask each of you briefly to tell us in your own words about your own mental health and why you're passionate about mental health issues. And also, what does mental health look like in your country? I think I'll go first. Um, my mental health right now as we speak, thank you for asking Kathleen, uh, is very good. Um, I'm very excited to be here in Firenze, eating a lot of pasta and pizza, you know, and having a good time. But that has not always been the case. Uh, I come from a very, uh, you know, my background, uh, my country's background, which is Rwanda, is very traumatic and devastating. We we suffered through uh, the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi, and this left a lot of wounds, you know, invisible wounds uh, in everyone, including myself. My mother survived, and uh, I was diagnosed with PTSD and then panic disorder and then depression and then, you know, these conditions that arise from untreated, you know, um, suppressed mental health conditions. And so through that, uh, I, I, I decided to try and advocate for better mental health for, you know, the youth in my country. Uh, the state of mental health care in my country is actually quite impressive, given that it's one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, they're, they're doing, they're making quite a lot of steps to address the mental health condition but in, in, in the country, but um, there's still a lot to be said or a lot to be done uh, to address it fully. Yeah, so I guess I just naturally have to go next. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, one of the reasons why I decided, I decided to get into the mental health space, so I'll probably just give a bit of background. Um, as to why and how I got here. I um, I am a retired, or should I say tired medical doctor um, who left um, clinical practice to, to venture into um, starting a non-profit charity in Nigeria called uh, Mentally Aware Nigeria Initiative. So we started about three years ago. And one of the reasons, one of the, should I say, the biggest push that I had was a conversation I had with, with my psychiatrist at the time when he, when he made me realize how privileged I was because I told him I was diagnosed with um, depression in medical school and and it was more it was very tough time for me, but I was able to get through that period with support from my from my um, friends and family, and that I finished. And then I'm I'm in this very great practice, and he was telling me you're very lucky. So I had that I had that thought for almost a month, and it sort of like created a ripple in my in my mind of how privileged I've been to to be able to live in a country that has a lot of incredible should I say it's like terrible stigma for mental health issues um, and still be able to finish medical school because just like he said most people wouldn't be able to finish um, such a tough um, course and I thought I just tried to do like an initial scoping review of my own just to do like an, a mini research to find out what the state of mental health was in Nigeria at the time and I found out young people did, actually didn't have anyone to talk to or didn't have any should I say any platforms to express themselves and tell the stories of their mental health because of, should I say, discrimination that comes with it. So I thought it was going to be a good idea to, to create that kind of community that I had when I was diagnosed and that kind of supportive, incredible community that you want to be part of that helps you see through your, your should I say, struggles and be able to live to your fullest potential. And that's really why I decided to, to start up the organization. Um, my current mental health, I, I say something that I, I cope with regularly. I still find it hard to sleep and I'm just trying to, uh, should I say I'm just living. I'm just thankful to be alive, you know, having passed through all that I've been through and still be here and have these conversations and be in a space like this is, is just amazing. And I'm very, um, still very much privileged to be in this space. Thank you so much for sharing that and maybe something to come back to because I want everyone else to introduce themselves first but I think this concept of mental health as a binary thing is 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 probably one of the problems that needs to be addressed worldwide and, and I think we should talk about that. Um, Josiah, you want to talk? Hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess sort of as I was saying earlier, the things that sort of happened before I was born and the fact is that my family were and um so I grew up not um 
being able to speak my indigenous language, not knowing where our indigenous land was, uh, in a community where um, to be all of who I was was potentially shameful. And I could, as a kid, I didn't want to identify as Samoan because uh, all the stories around me were to say that that was negative, and so that made me feel like um, that wasn't something that was. I couldn't draw on for strength and so I had to deny half of myself and so in a sense I had this splintering going on which as a kid made me feel unwell and um, it wasn't till further on when I was a bit older uh, that that ended up helping me see with some friends of mine who were the same that we could found something that kind of helped us enhance our well-being um, through growing leadership and leadership of Pacific young people in New Zealand we're 8.1% of the total population at the moment um, we're not actually Pacific doesn't really exist we kind of have this connection we are Samoan we are Nui and we are Tongan but we have these, these shared values and shared ways of working and and that is something that supports us to stay well um, and when I had sort of the time when I was at my my worst and my mental well-being uh, when I was sort of transitioning into uni and then a little bit further along while I was studying, uh, that was something that I could draw on to stay well. Um, I didn't want to get up anymore. I didn't, um, I stopped talking to people, but I kept talking to those who were culturally significant to me, whether it was elders or uh, a community. And so I guess I hadn't realized how I'd unintentionally created some protective factors with my friends. And and, and in that fun, that, that um, yeah, kept me well um, to the extent it did and now it's something that I get to help others with which is phenomenal and unintentional and then um, yeah the New Zealand government asked me to be on this national review to highlight and elevate Pacific Youth Voice and Youth Voices in New Zealand so it was kind of like I'd been through those hard times to have the empathy to do that and so sometimes I think we forget in this space the, the governance opportunities and the and the as younger people that can, there's boards on all these different organisations that make these big choices about mental health and wellbeing. And we don't often see ourselves reflected in those positions. And um, because I had the right mentoring and because people helped me validate my culture early on, uh, there's no reason why with support I couldn't be there. And as we have sort of been talking about, why we aren't there. And so, yeah, that's something we can dial more up globally. Great, thank you for sharing that. And I'm, I'm also really interested in this cross intersection between your own personal mental health and, and identity. I think there's a lot that happens in that in that space, especially for children growing up and youth. So that's something I think at, at this conference this weekend we should be talking about. So Fatu, what about you? Yeah, actually I'm just bouncing on what you just said because like my personal story... Um, this idea of creating like a platform such as uh, SOS came from me um, coming to a point where I like I just considered I could not be understood uh, because I'm like a person who feels things very deeply. I'm a very empathetic empathic person, um, and like in my country, when you feel things in a certain way, people tend to judge you. They will call you sensitive. They will call you mm. weak. And when you cry, like for just nothing, you're like, oh, why, why are you crying? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And you're calling dramatic. So um, I've just like grown up with those thoughts that I was weak. That I, uh, yeah, that I just, you know, I'm not like others. I'm not normal. And I came to believe in like those thoughts. So. I and at the same time I was consider like I I was actually for people an active listener I would always be there for them like listening to them to their story and giving them advice and really trying to to help out um and I just came up to to realize that I didn't have this for me like people who who would understand me as much as I do for them so I moved out like to 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 France some years ago, and I was just facing like a very stressful life mm. <laughs> lifestyle, um, and I was going a lot mentally, and I 
couldn't reach out because like mm. I knew that if I tried to reach out to my family, they wouldn't understand. My mom would just say to me, go to like, did you try to pray or something like that? Uh, my, 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 my friends, when I would just reach out, I don't, I don't know, at 2 a.m., telling to them that I can't sleep, they would just try to say, oh, did you try to put your, your, your phone down? So they just, you know, wouldn't be that uh, attentive. So I just decided to be there for myself, um, to create my own safe space to express myself. And I decided to write down all my, all my personal thoughts and, and to actually realize that most of that, my conditioning right now are from uh, like, like, how can I say, like most of my fears and inner beliefs are from my childhood. Mm. And I decided to deconstruct that because I think like this, this conditioning has been learned, mm -hmm. so it can be unlearned. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, and that's why I just um, started the project, which is like an active listening platform project, uh, which leads to uh, like which just aims, sorry, to give access to the young people, but like the Senegalese one. Uh, a free space to express themselves anonymously so that they can be heard and they can be understood without the fear of being judged. And today I would say that this is a very challenging project because like I'm a very anxious person. So I think right now I'm feeling very well because like I'm in a safe place uh, to express my feelings because I tend to say that I would only open up to people who, who earn the right to mm -hmm. hear my story. And I think here I, you know, I have people who earn the right to it because I kind of have like, you know, same stories or actually we are, this is a, a topic which is very keen to our heart. So, so yeah, I would say that I'm so happy to be part of this right now. And it's just give me the opportunity, opportunity to, to show the world, but also to show countries like developing countries like Senegal, that this topic is a very important topic to tackle. So, um, I think looking at my own mental health, especially in recent times, especially since I got to Florence, it's been fantastic. As Grace said, you know, it's a wonderful city, just walking around and not not having all these stresses from my daily life back at school is has been really refreshing and has been really good for my mental health. But at the same time, I can admit that Leading up to the conference, there were times when I was running into a lot of different stress factors in my life that I was working through as I was also preparing to be here today. Um, in terms of why I'm passionate about mental health, I think it really goes back to my middle school days where I was, I was facing a lot of bullying and I was facing social exclusion, but more so not because of my problems, but because of what my friends were going through. I became someone that they would come to and talk to about their mental health problems. And at that time, I didn't even know their mental health problems. To us, it was just problems that they were going through. And as a friend, you just had to be there for someone. And um, I lost my closest friend to suicide back in eighth grade. And that's, I think, that's when it really struck me that this is something that can be very, very serious and have really serious real-life consequences. And it's time for us to work towards doing something for it. So I started going online on Instagram and finding people who were going through mental health problems and just reaching out to them, having a conversation and trying to be there for them when they felt that they had no one else that they could rely on. And in the past five years since I started that, I've spoken over 300 people on social media. And at some point I realized that I wanted to scale this, which is how I ultimately created Runaway so I could get more people involved in the process and help more people, but also have more people help me help people. Um, when I look at the state of my country, and at this point, being an international student, I think I belong to two countries. So obviously, I've grown up my whole life in India, and I've spent my childhood there. I've gone through all these experiences in India. And from that perspective, I think I'm not happy about the way that my country tackles issues like mental health. I think there's a lot of stigma in our society. There's, it's a taboo topic to talk about. It's really hard to find therapists or psychologists, even in New Delhi, which is the capital city, and it's very metropolitan. We have everything that New York City has, for example, but at the same time, we're lacking mental health resources significantly. And a lot of times, you know, we'll read about cases of road rage or gun violence come up in the city and people will blame it on everything, but they'll forget to mention that the reason someone got to that point a lot of times is because 
they were going through these stresses they were you know these things were boiling in their mind but no one paid attention or they didn't feel comfortable sharing it or getting help and i think that's something that everyone involved not just the government but also just companies could talk about better mental health resources friends and family could talk about better mental health resources so i think there's a lot of work to do in terms of my now second home which is new york i think i'm really happy because new york state just passed the legislation recently where they've made it mandatory for mental health education in middle schools and high schools and they're the first state in the country to do that and i think it's it's a really important step and it's it's not everything and there's you know a lot more that can still be done but i think it's a really good first step in making conversations about mental health more accessible to people and creating these safe spaces where students from a very young age are more open to discussing mental health and are more open to the idea that everyone has mental health and it's okay for it to go bad from time to time like your physical health does and when it does it's acceptable to get help and i think it's a model that not just other states but other countries should adopt as well because the earlier that you start inculcating this mindset of it's okay to ask for help i think the more happier the future is going to be and as someone whose personal mission's always been to make the world happier i think i just love to see that happen Thank you so much. That was such a great response and all of you had great responses. But um yeah, I think especially in the context of of young people, youth, children growing up in middle and high school, I think it, it, I'm really interested to hear all of your views on you know, around the world in your country or, or globally, what what kind of services do you think are are lacking? I mean, a lot of mental health services were were not available at least in, for me growing up. But but in order to reduce stigma and, and also to make children feel comfortable addressing their own issues, there need to be accessible services available. What do you guys think is the first step? What actions do you think need to be taken for us to start improving uh, mental health awareness in schools? So, um, I will say this from the, perspe- uh, the perspective of a young child having uh, like mental health problems. I think a thing that I would have benefited from incredibly would be the presence of a skilled uh, mental health health professional, right? Like a psychiatrist, a psychologist, you know, someone who went to school for it, someone who knows how to handle it, and maybe specialize in like child mental health so if that doesn't exist then maybe there should be a space for that for pediatrician mental health you know um but i know that i would have i would have benefited from it immensely because growing up i was gaslit into believing that i was attention seeking whenever i had my panic attacks or um, that what I was doing was pretending to be sick or something like that. And these are the gaps for me in my country that I'm missing. It's uh, the lack of a mental health professional in school, uh, the lack of someone skilled in identifying the signs of you know, young people getting, um, having crises, um, mental health crises. And I think maybe you know uh the 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 you know after getting support or after getting medication the presence of someone to to follow up i think that's also an important thing because other people have like you know a therapist you see at least regularly for the next year or so but in my country because of maybe the lack of resources there's still a lack of you know therapists um people to follow up mm-hmm. after you get the medication that you need so um i'll kind of not necessarily counter grace's point but as someone so in my middle school when i was going through these mental health problems and when my friends were going through these mental health problems we actually had a guidance counselor who stayed in school and was available to students in school every day but no one accessed her or because the people who did or the people who were brave enough to go to her were always as soon as they walked out of her office were always met with a lot of jokes and comments and became furthermore a target for bullying because people you know call them crazy or people would 
it would just it would not be a good situation for them to be in and this further discouraged other students from asking for help and but it's i mean it's still a great resource to have but i think it's important for the resource not only to exist but to also foster that mentality in students which i guess comes through education in terms of that it's fine to use that resource and instead encourage them to use that resource one thing i can think of is maybe for each class make it mandatory that once a week or even once a month you have to everyone gets like 15 minutes so if there's really something that you want to say if everyone's doing it you can't make fun of one single person for visiting a counselor or something like that um and I think that's an important step, but also it's important to realize that as a student, you're spending part only a part of your day at school. So, but the second half, you're spending at home with your family, with your peers, and it's really more of a societal change that needs to come. So, I mean, I was talking to Victor about this earlier is when I used to talk to my own parents and I, full disclosure, I mean, if they hear this podcast, I love you. And uh, I owe everything that I have today to you guys, but when I started talking about mental health or even when I started Runaway, they hated the idea that I was talking to people with mental health problems. And I think that was not them not being sympathetic with what I was doing, but more just a societal stigma that they were feeding into. So I think it's important. And now, I mean, they're some of my biggest supporters. I've, they're more open about their own mental health. You know, it's, we discuss our mental health very openly at home. And I think that just comes, which is why I'm really happy to be here, because all of us are youth leaders working towards these different mental health resources and breaking down that stigma. So I think slowly but surely, not just in schools, but outside too, with your peers, with your families, all that change is definitely going to come. Mm. Yeah, to add to all of that's been said, I think one of the things that I've started to be really inspired by is some of the mindfulness programs that are happening in schools in New Zealand and I see other countries where they're sort of, in the words of someone I really admire, um, Lucy McSweeney back home, she talks about um, if you know how to be a good friend, then you can give the best support possible to the people around you that you love. And that's kind of what, from her perspective and what I've seen, makes difference with children. I think at times, and particularly at the international level, we get really, um, we think like, oh, some more counsellors, oh, some more doctors, more nurses. You know, that's a really easy response. And often it doesn't deal with the underlying challenges because we're not actually increasing our ability to respond to those things. We're just <laughs> maybe, yeah, being reactive. And so... I think going to what she said, if we were to teach how to how to be great friends, and then we might not need the kind of medical responses because we're just enhancing our ability to live with each other well, and so that's um, and and then to add to that, like one of the challenges in the school setting, I find is often like they might start something in one really siloed area. It's not a real coherent plan and it might be helpful like in the health area of the school or the sports area and they can do that but it's as though we need schools and and universities and all all areas I mean even institutions like the UN and UNICEF to take away their silos that's when you really can help children when there's a borderless world when there's you know these gaps that mean that you you operate as an organisation, you operate as a government, you don't operate as all these separate ministries or all these separate departments in the school. That's when we really elevate children's voice and we help understand how to be a good friend and we actually deeply collaborate for what we really care about. Yeah, just to just to add to all of the things that have been added, which is fantastic. Um, one of the th- things that is, is a very key issue across board in different countries is the problem of capacity, the capacity to support um, young people and, and their mental health. Um, and that's one one of the reasons why the WHO has this incredible program um, targeted at task shifting called the Image Gap, which basically just teaches people that are not health professionals to be able to provide um, support in their communities. Um, so it could be useful to have increased, for young people, increased um, empowerment of young persons to provide peer support it's right. such so vital and so underrated. How to be um, a friend? Yeah, basically, and and just to, to teach them how to to give help and to seek help is part of the things that one of the reasons why we have um, in Nigeria we have uh, um, more than fifteen hundred volunteers in, in our organization across fifteen states in the country, and and we we are very particular about building their capacity to be 
leaders in mental health. So we teach them how to how to be leaders in mental health and how to do mental advocacy. But more importantly, we teach them how to seek help and how to be the best people that that know when to give help and when to refer that person to to seek help as well. It's so important to to understand um, the lack of resources in place and be able to to take advantage of that and and be able to, and and change how mental health is seen um, from the scratch. Yeah, no, just to wrap it up because like you guys said it all very well. Um, but I think we should just understand like at some point that schools should be the places where um, actually self-confidence and self-esteem should be constructed. And most of our like, you know, inner beliefs, they came from our childhood. Because mm. like when I just take my own experience, when I was in like, I don't know, in elementary school, I... I have been a lot bullied, like uh, from my skin tone, for example, because like darker than our average, <laughs> Senegalese average. So this just came like to make me believe that maybe I'm not that beautiful. Maybe I'm not like you know I won't be accepted like as I am like in my country because like the um, just like the how can you say like what's supposed to be normal is to be half like I don't know most. Most milk than chocolate, <laughs> most milk than coffee, and like oh, hot, like I'm just 100% chocolate. Anyways, that was a joke, but um, <laughs> so I think like we should start from like schools to teach children how to love themselves mm. and how to accept themselves, yes. so that they could accept others. Mm. Because when you are a child, you internalize a lot. So instead of just, you know. Um, I don't know. It's math. I'm, I'm not saying that math not is not are not important, but mathematics are very important. But like, you know, alongside with that, we can maybe add some I don't know, um, some self-esteem or some affirmations cr like programs, um, non-violent communication, uh, personal development com like programs, so that people like child children will just construct this. Um, self-awareness, self-mindfulness about like themselves and their own mental health because I think it should start from it, like just to say like to the child, you are beautiful as you are and you should accept yourself as you are and you should also accept your peer as they are because mm. most of the time like we don't, like they did it unconsciously you know, you can find a child we can call another child weird or bizarre or something like that and as the other child, I would just internalize that, okay, so because my peer is saying that, that maybe means that it's it's true. I want to go back a little bit to something I feel like you each seemed like maybe you were interested in discussing further, this concept of mental health not being binary. And I think uh, uh, an analogy I have is also that the recent research is showing that sometimes growing up, people say that academic ability is is just something people have or don't have. And some kids growing up, strongly believe that they grow up in an environment where they're taught to believe that and and some research is showing that um in places where children are, are educated to think that their ability um uh, to learn is growing is not set that their academic ability is not something that they either have or don't have but it's something that they ha have the power to improve themselves that they do better in school and so I find that really interesting that, that you know, there, there are a lot of things that children are taught from a young age that is just they have academic ability or they don't, or they have athletic ability or they don't, or they have mental health issues or they don't. And I think that um, in in this context, I think it's important to, to talk about, I think there's something wrong about having this, you either do or you don't mentality. Uh, especially when it comes to mental health issues, which I think are so in flux for everyone. It's a journey for everyone. So um, does anyone want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the, uh, just give an example of one of the programs that we have um, going on in money is, is that we are very interested in making sure that parents are part of the process of whatever we are doing because not involving them means that kids leave the environment where they are safe in school which we are looking to create and go back home to you know to face more triggers and the thing about it is like um, Sadvik said it's not really should I say the parents fault because that's how they were trained as well so they're just passing across what is like a learned um, behavior 
that they have they have um should i say they grew up under and they're just pushing that across that if you don't succeed in academia on academics you won't succeed in life and that pressure is just transferred to the to the child and you know they live with that and whenever they don't do well they feel like failures and it's, it, it, sometimes for them it's just like a very it's like a negative mechanism they just keep on failing anyway because they feel like well i'm useless and my parents think i'm useless so there's no need trying to to do better or to prove them wrong and the pressure is one of the things that we we think causes a lot of issues with, with young people's mental health um, i'm very careful not to, to to relate normal life experiences to to actual mental problems because that sort of like um um should i say trivializes it and um, because a lot of there's a lot of conversations now about pathologization of of common experiences that people used to build resilience but that's like i said resilience is something that you build and over time with the constant pressures from society and from from our parents we find that you're much more likely to experience a breakdown as a young person in this age um, than in a, than the much more um, should I say than you should because of like the available resources and and the existence across the world is you know nowadays. So I feel like there's so much more pressure on yeah, today's youth. Yeah, there are, and there's a lot, lot more distractions as well. So all right. of that, just just so many things coming together at the same time. Pressure from home, pressure from your peers. It, it's not it's not healthy at all, and we ne- we need to build um, a much more stronger mechanism of countering that. Um, yeah, Chris. Yeah, um, I I think I especially appreciate you talking about how mental health is not binary at all, or mental illness is not talking about mental illness is not like you either have it or you don't, because I think because it is by large an invisible um, sort of condition. Uh, a lot of people forget that it is there and people forget the fact that it is an illness you know it's like the illness part of it goes away and people think if I sing to this person who is depressed then they'll feel better or if this happens then the person will do this I think it's very important to to realize that mental illness is you know there and even though someone has good days and bad days it's very hard for you for them to get over it and to wake up and feel better to you know move over it you know it's like I'll I'll give a very candid uh, confession right now which I've never done to anyone um even on my best days even when we are walking through Florence and like eating gelato and being um you know, carefree. <laughs> Even when Sadvik is uh, uh, taking us for his vlog and we're, you know, having a good time, my brain is always constantly suggesting ways to kill myself, you know? So it'll, it's like, we'll walk through a, a restaurant and it's like, grab that knife, just grab it, you know? It's like, or, you know, and it's, it's like, I talked to my therapist about it and it's like, you know, suicide ideation never ends. You just live with it and, you know, conquer it day by day by day by day by writing, by singing, by listening, by distracting yourself. And that's the thing I, I find it hard to, that's the thing I find hard to explain to people. It's like, I'm mentally ill. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not binary. I'm smiling at you, but I'm suffering. And I think that's the same way we should talk to children. We should recognize that children are complex creatures. I call them creatures, guys, but they're amazing people too. Yeah, but they're complex people who experience a wide variety of emotions, who experience a wide variety of mental health conditions. And just because they don't uh, show them, like maybe an adult would or have the language to sh- to talk about it like an adult would, doesn't mean that they don't suffer. And that it doesn't mean that they're not mentally ill. Or that doesn't mean that they're not dealing with complex mental health uh, conditions. And once we start from there, once we start from believing that children are people in their own right and that they are they can suffer the same breadth of mentally ill, mental illnesses or mental health conditions that we suffer as adults. I think that's from there on, we can start to see mental health as non-binary 
and we can start addressing it as such. We can stop looking at, like, bring music into schools and then that will solve the problem, but rather look at a complex, at a wide array of interventions, starting with, you know, music and art projects, but also having, you know, a psychiatrist in school, despite proven, you know, stigma around it. Like, looking at it from a very wide, lens yeah. helps to um, to deal with the with the breadth of the problem there is no one solution exactly yeah, yeah. I just just wanted to add um, sure. to, to that just wanted to add to that I think parents make the mistake of of judging their struggles as adults and comparing them directly to, to their children mm. so it's so easy to say get over it because you're not mm. suffering as much you're not stuck in traffic all day you know you, you, you didn't get what water splashed on you you know going to work today and so they see what a young child is going through and belittle it and say you're a child, you shouldn't be mm -hmm. facing this struggle from not having yeah. friends talk to you. Yeah. It's a very common misconception, misconception that has led to that misunderstanding of, of whether a young child should be coping mental issues or not at mm -hmm. their age. Yeah. Right. And it's something that we need to consciously teach parents yeah. not to do well. and learn as well as, yeah. as, as, growing, as growing adults that will be parents tomorrow. I also think that couples well with something you said previously, Victor, which is that actually today's youth have more pressure on them than ever before. And it can because so much is expected from childhood at a young age because also we're living in this digitally advanced world and that enables us to do so much more in less time. We can communicate with people across the world in seconds. There's People are learning more, doing more, faster every day and there's so much expectation on children to succeed academically. So I, I think that it's more important now than ever for us to address the children's issues and to take them seriously. Yeah, like I was just wanted to add, like, because I find it so relatable what you just said uh, about, like, you know, parents and everything. Um, to, I'm just taking my own experience. I'm like from a family. We are actually three, but we lost, like, I lost my um, sister, my younger sister, uh, some years ago. And just like just I'm I'm gonna say just add it on to some like others mm -hmm. internal trauma in, into my family. Um because my dad, for example, he's he's lost he his mom very at a very young age and he was separated from like his brothers and sisters. So he also, you know, grew up with like some inner in a in a like childhood trauma. But like he didn't acknowledge acknowledge it, and he's st still he's not acknowledging it, and and also uh, sometimes just found like for example one way I just found to convince my mom that what I'm doing is very impactful and can be powerful for for my peers and my country is like someday we were just talking like randomly and she was like complaining about my my dad, she was saying yeah he's like sometimes I'm really doubting about like his mental health like she she's really speaking like unconsciously she's just because like i'm just putting words like you know but she's like yeah because like sometimes i just feel like he doesn't understand you know why or what something like that happens and so it's like okay she she kept on like you know complaining and stuff and i knew that i know that for her for example when he lost my my younger sister she was very hurt like it's the normal reaction actually but i would say she was like her favorite ch child, so I could feel how she, how hurt she was, mm -hmm. but she didn't express it, and she thought that she hasn't the right to do it because she's religious. Because like to her, she she should just like accept it and move move on because like she just consider it as a challenge, you know, as something like she should she just um, yeah she just. Uh, come over and I'm really uh, I was really trying to understand like you know her feelings and stuff so when she just you know finished I, I just went okay so have you ever thought about like maybe just maybe what my dad went through when he was a child has repercussions on how he's you know just um, how he's behaving right now Maybe he's he can't like understand you because like he hasn't been taught how to, or maybe like he hasn't been understood or you are not understanding him the way he wants to be. Because I'm reminding you that 
why I'm doing this, it's like, for example, when I take the, the, the example of my, of my sister's death, I'm sure that some days you just hide behind your rooms and you, you just maybe you just cry. And she's like, yeah. And I said, and it's normal because, I, you know, this is your feelings and they have to be validated and they, you don't have to prove to anyone that you're not feeling good. And she was like, oh, right. And you know, she was just starting to switch her perspective about, like, about, the, about the subject. So because I use a personal experience mm -hmm. and I put her in a place where she had to um, accept her vulnerability, she had been able at, from this time, from that time, to accept my dad's vulnerability too. And that's how I'm constructing our relationship right now. So every time she just starts, I will say, okay, so have you tried to just, you know, see things through this way? And she will go, yeah, no, but you know what? Okay, so let me just calm down. And I think this is important, like, to just have this type of, this type of conversation with our parents because sometimes they're just carrying a lot. They've been through and they didn't have the, like, understanding or, like, just education that they... They, they meant to receive when they were like younger. So, yeah, do you want to add something? Yeah, um, thank you so much. Uh, to, to I, I echo with you the same sentiment. Um, I think as, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to speak for Africans, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but as Africans, I think our parents' generation was the generation of like, violence mm. if if you can say they grew up within violence uh, they saw violence and experienced it and i think for them as well i think for me now i've had to learn how to to be to to be empathetic mm. because i carried a lot of anger and and rage within me because of how much i love you mom my parents <laughs> didn't um know about mental health at that time and and they've they've changed incredibly and they support me and they know that I'm here in Italy so I love you mom but <laughs> um but yeah but uh, as children of these parents as as children of this that comes from this generation we've we've faced such a traumatic childhood because they felt like they had to raise us the same way that they were raised, which is in violence. And, you know, and that's informed the way we grew up and that's informed our mental health and that's informed informed the stigma, you know, around mental health. It's like, don't be weak, don't look weak to people outside. Um, solve our issues within here and, and you're a child and what could you know about suffering? I walked for 70 miles to go to school. I, I, I ate one meal a day and that meal was rotten also. You, what do you have to, you know, to be, to be sad for, right? And so that negating of your child's experience, but also like not realizing how damaged you sound, <laughs> sort of, it's like, what? <laughs> do you not get why mental health is important? It's like, do you not understand that you went through a traumatic experience? Like, no, my dad beating me 70 times a day, um, made me the person who I am is like, no, they hurt you, yeah. you know? So learning to see them as children who never got the sort of healing that we are seeking for will teach us forgiveness, but also um, teaching them uh, that their mental health is valid will also provide healing to ourselves and then stop the same culture or stop the same sort of violent cycle to 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 come again to to happen again because the ones that are growing up now are relying on us to speak on for them and are relying on us to prepare a world where uh, they can grow up in a safe space and safe you know with mental health care and access thank you both for sharing the very personal experiences I think I just want to take a moment to step back and synthesize what I think is an important takeaway from the two stories you both just shared. And that is that, uh, and tell me if I'm right, but 
that the conversation about what we should be doing to improve mental health for children also needs to include parents and education for parents as well as the children because uh, educating and support for mental health for children needs to involve parents so they understand the types of issues that they're facing and, and how you can properly support your child. So I think that's really important and uh, thank you for sharing that. Because I think just to touch on that, like one of the ways we look at success sometimes globally is, you know, you as an individual, but that's not the context of a child. You know, a child doesn't get to make all the decisions about themselves. They are deliberately in a whānau, in a family, whether that's biological or, or whatever context that is. And, and so we have to yeah, not try and achieve success by looking at that as them as an individual. And, and we can't forget about children's feelings as well. Like what you both have just said reminds me of a story from back home where I asked at this review that we were leading, what was some of the things that children were saying? And mm. the number one story that came up, which surprised me so much, was when when the children were going away on school camp to this particular school, they didn't want to go after there had been this big natural disaster because they're worried about what their parents would be feeling when they were not at home. We often, you know, forget about the child. We want the child to be successful as an individual. We forget about the child in the context of their family. We forget about their feelings in the context of their family. Mm-hmm. And and actually we elevate, you know, parents' feelings. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just like... And we've been talking about, I think, and, this, and one of the ways I hear it defined back home is intergenerational miscommunication. Like we don't have the space sometimes to be able to strengthen what we talk about in, in my culture as the va, like the the connection between us, you know, this, this garden that you can um, sow wellness or unwellness into, and then it leads to further unwellness, I think, which we've all sort of been talking about. And so I guess what I'm trying to throw in here is, we have to rediscover some of our indigenous approaches to, to deliberate through these challenges. We've been operating through Western paradigms which aren't working in mental health and well-being. I mean, the whole concept of being um, well or unwell, I mean, that's, that's not an indigenous way of looking at the world necessarily. Mm. We didn't have illness when we, from, from my region and the way that we talk about illness now. We have these models of how we used to build things where even if you had a disability or other challenge, every single person had a role in, in creating that. Um, there, was, there wasn't stigmatisation that we see in the same um, from Western paradigms. And so what I'm trying to say is like we've had a, a leadership structure which has looked at how to, to look and support children and mental health and it hasn't worked. And so we need to, to change who is at the table and how we're deliberating through these things to deal with intergenerational miscommunication and to validate children's feelings because they're there experiencing it all just like everyone else and they might not have the language for it but um, we have an opportunity to, to, to feel and give words to their hearts. Thank you for sharing that. I think the cultural approach is a very important message that needs to be heard at this conference. I'm going to let our other communication consultant, Angie, add something well we've um we've been speaking a lot about grassroots solutions like how to be a friend and you know supportive family structures and involving the parents but leading minds is bringing together these leaders from around the world politicians policy makers what would you like world leaders to know about youth mental health um, what one action do you think that they can take to make the situation a little bit better for for those with mental health problems or for people in general? I think the first the first thing that world mental health and just world leaders in general can take is recognizing the fact that everyone has mental health. A lot of times they will emphasize on the mental health of you know their vote banks or people who are going to help them stay in power or stay as the leader and it's important for them to look at entire communities entire populations and provide resources that are equally accessible for everyone um obviously you know minority groups not just ethnicities or religion religious minorities but also populations like student groups for example face more barriers to accessing mental health resources and yes it's important for us to provide resources specifically for them 
But at the same time, if a leader, you know, keeps talking about the mental health of one population, in that process, you're alienating a whole other group of people who now feel stigmatized about their own mental health and will feel conscious about reaching out to ask for resources. So I think, and not just world leaders, I think all of us need to, if anything, take away the fact that everyone has mental health. And when someone, for example, if you have a headache, someone's going to tell you to see a doctor or take a medicine. But when someone says that they have bad mental health, people, the first thing's like, stop complaining or no, you don't or things like that. And I think it's important for people to instead say, okay, go get the help that you need and understand that, yeah, you're not a trained professional, but someone else out there is and you should refer them to it or just or just give someone the little push that they need and let it let them feel more open and let them feel more comfortable in their own skin accepting that there's a problem that they need to ask for help thank you grace um i think the what i want world leaders and leaders in the global mental health space to know is that um for me it's that tangible ask i think it's that time is now like right now to start thinking about how to provide affordable quality and accessible mental health care for rural populations i know satvik said uh, we should you know not focus on groups and to in to ensure that other people can not feel stigmatized but i feel like rural populations by and large do not have the resources that they require not only like medical care medical mental health care but also like you know uh accompaniers people to go and check up on them therapists you know uh, group counseling peer support things like that they don't have that and i think right now is the time to to invest in that um and i'm very ready to let them know at the leading minds conference <laughs> yeah yeah so um <laughs> one of the key um should i say ask for for what leaders is to just go beyond talking and and signing you know treaties and and uh, just postulating and posturing i think it's time for them to to actually act and make and, and just put some commitment behind their words um we've had so much from different world leaders in various bilateral meetings and sessions about what they're doing which they're not really doing and what kind of commitments would you like to see yeah so they should should i say just make sure they start to integrate mental health into into all the processes um from to edu- from education to to youth and sports to to information to to just basically everything and it's so important to have that um conversation and just go beyond the conversation so just start looking at integrating mental health into those policies and processes and have plans for how to fund them because that's usually one of the key issues that they have there's no financial framework for, for there's no inclusion for for young people when it comes to funding mental health and that that needs to happen we should stop shying away from from calling it out and just you know just say it as it is and hope that they they take action um i guess if i'm to name some of the organizations who are doing the work i quite like what the world health organization has been talking about for many years now that there's no health without mental health um and as victor said i'd love to see mental health being embedded in every single piece of work that the World Health Organization does. And so but I, I guess I want to see them completely intertwined. So it's one and, and for UNICEF's work um, there's lots of awesome different program streams that are happening and uh, those things could be even more deeply intertwined so that mental health and well-being which does live in all of them if we could just have the visibility and the um, the, the different people from, from the mental health streams which are clear, embedded into those areas, that might help as well. So I guess I'm encouraging these two organisations which have the deep convening power, they can get world leaders to the table, they can raise the conversations, they can have and help hold accountability. Um, I, I worry about populism and, and some of the choices that world leaders will make. Um, and so I encourage WHO and UNICEF to stay strong in, in the things that we've been talking about that, that have to happen and to consistently call together those conversations. Uh, and I hear from someone and others around the table that it could be good for UNICEF and WHO maybe to hold a funders forum, international funders forum to kind of begin those conversations and, and these other areas that they can um, bring together people for 
the movement we need to see. And yeah, just like to to really wrap wrap it up. Sorry, <laughs> um, I would say yeah. Just like the leaders, like the world leaders, to keep in mind that um, if they're really concerned about the youth mental health, they should include youth, uh, young people, in their like in their work actually, because like um, if you talk about it without us, it's like against us. <laughs> and I think we should, they should, they should know that. Yeah, it's it's. It's, it will be more impactful and more powerful if you just if they include the young people in their work in their in their in their thoughts uh, in how yeah in just like in the reflections and um, maybe also to how can I say it to consider mental health like actual like the mental health condition as a human right mm. as long as physical health so mm. we should consider people with mental health illness with more respect with more mm. tenderness with more compassion we should provide them this is the this is the must we should provide them the health that the care that they need mm. and also uh yeah just like to keep in mind that it is a human right so everyone deserves to be treated uh, appropriately and respectfully great thank you and I think mentioning that um, it's a human right is, is, is a great way to end this podcast because this year we're celebrating the 30th anniversary and the Convention on the Rights of the Child. So here at UNICEF, we're, we're very interested in, in championing human and child rights and, and making mental health rights uh, part of the conversation here this weekend. So thank you all uh, for joining me for this special edition podcast. I really appreciate all of your input. And I, I hope that this um, conversation is, is really useful leading up to Leading Minds this weekend. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thanks for having us. Uh, no, yeah, thank thank you. you so much. Um, just for those of you who are, are still listening, um, you can check out the website for Leading Minds at unicef-irc.org slash leadingminds and follow us on all social media channels, the big ones, at UNICEF Innocenti. So uh, with that, we'll say goodbye. Thank you all. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. Ciao, ciao. ciao, ciao.